The Grants Creek Trestle. 1. Rooksmill, Virginia is a small town in the northeast of the state, population 2,712. Mayor is Tom Bulldog Collins, like the drink, only not. He knows the stories, but he doesn't give any credence to them. You would get to Rooksmill by following a winding series of roads coming off of a nowhere part of I-85 that moves through a wooded valley, a flat expanse of pasture, one small town the name of which is not important to the narrative, and finally another wooded area winding around the side of a mountain, and around the bend the town just starts. You could drive up and down every road of the town, check out all its little niches and crevices, and not ever see it. You could talk to all of the people in town, and no one would mention it. Maybe some of the kids might. They haven't been inculcated yet, but if any of the adults found out, there would be hell to pay. They just don't like to talk about things like that with strangers. After exploring the town, you could drive right out the other way and continue your journey and not even be aware that the road you're driving on is a solution to the problem no one talked about. The road that leads to the Grants Creek Trestle doesn't exist anymore. It's gone to weeds and been long abandoned, but the bridge is still there. The citizens of Rooks Mill could lead you right to it, but none of them will. Officially, it's been 57 years since any disappearances took place there, and if we can keep it that way, great. Unofficially, though... 57 years ago was when the city council elected to put in the new road leading out of town. However, the council didn't plan it out very well, and they built the new road before paying for the bridge to be demolished. The fund ran out after the road was built, so the bridge still stands. The citizens of Rooks Mill are forbidden to go there, but they still do. Of course they do. During summer, kids will make the trek out to it and dare each other to cross. Sometimes one of them even does. Fortunately, nothing has ever happened. Teenagers use it as a makeout point, though God knows why. There's no place to do anything, and it couldn't be comfortable, but... Teenagers will be teenagers, I suppose. Every now and then there's some sort of drug deal that goes down there, because of course there is. You forbid people to go to a place, that's the first place people are going to go. Thirteen years or so back, there was some sort of shoot out there. No one was killed, just some injuries, but one of the parties involved lost a member somewhere. It's entirely possible he just ran off, realizing what kind of life he was getting into, but... It's also entirely possible he joined the ranks of the Vanished. That's a long line of people. Vanishings have been happening there since the bridge was constructed, and that was close to 200 years ago. Jeremy Bolton is one of the missing. He and his friend William Reichland were out enjoying their summer vacation, walking down to the river to do some fishing. As high school boys are wont to do, they were talking about girls. We'll listen in on a little bit of their conversation, but not too much. For one thing, it's rude to eavesdrop. For another, the subject matter is a little... unsavory. Lisa Collins... Jeremy said. Moment of silence from Will. Seven at the best. I don't dig the braces. I'd give her a six. Fair enough. Jessica Gilbert. Is she the one with the super curly hair? Yeah. Eh, five. Are you crazy? She's an eight at the very least. She doesn't do anything for me. We will pass over Will's response to that on the grounds of decency and because we are not children. Yeah, I hope you do. Jane Brown. The blonde or the brunette? The blonde. Seven. The brunette? Seven. Well, what the hell did you ask the difference for? What do you mean? If they're both seven, why did you ask which one I meant? Because I wanted to know which one you were going to rank. Blonde Jane, I give a seven. Brunette Jane, I'll go with nine. Nine. Really? Nine. Really? The boys were coming to the Grants Creek Trestle. Conversation faltered as it came into view, as it usually does. 
The river flowed beneath it, and the two had no intention of going up onto it, just down to the river to fish. They had found a good spot in the shadow of the bridge, not too hot, and set up, ready for a morning of fishing. A few hours passed, and then something in the corner of Will's eye caught his attention. He looked over, just in time to see Jessica Gilbert heading down to the water's edge. She was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and carrying a long beach towel, which she laid down. Will nudged Jeremy and pointed her out. They hadn't been noticed. They watched in prurient fascination as she grabbed the bottom of her shirt and pulled it off, revealing the bikini top underneath. The shorts went next, and then she laid down on the towel, right behind some brush and rocks, and tragically, for the boys, out of view. Will sighed and looked out of the river, over at Jessica, out of view, back to Jeremy, out of the river, and finally, very probably sealing Jeremy's fate, up at the bridge. Dude, he said, I think we can get up on the bridge without being seen, and we'll definitely get a good view over there. Jeremy, being a teenage boy in the near vicinity of a girl in a bikini, even if she was only a five, did not need to have his arm twisted. The two boys moved quietly up to the bridge, indeed without being seen, and took up a position. She was just out of view. Jeremy took a few steps further onto the bridge. I think if we go a little more, we'll be able to... Will waited, but Jeremy didn't finish his sentence. He turned to ask Jeremy what he was going to say, but the words never came out of his suddenly dry mouth. Jeremy was gone. In one terrible instant, all of the stories about the bridge, the legend of the Bud Adams funeral in particular among them for reasons Will would never understand, filled his mind. Jeremy had been vanished. If you were to ask him about events immediately following, well, he wouldn't admit anything, even the existence of Jeremy Bolton, because you're a stranger. But he told people that he doesn't remember coming off of the bridge, or running to Jessica, screaming her name, telling her what happened. He remembers them running back into town, but that's the first thing he remembers after the vanishing. Will and Jessica are married now, two kids. They both swore to never tell them about the bridge. It's a vow a lot of parents in Rook's Mill make, but kids are kids and they always find out, so the legends never die, and there have always been those foolish enough to tempt the fates. It's been a while since I've written here telling the story of Jeremy Bolton, and that's ultimately because I'm stalling. I'm one of those who tempted fate, but I'm also, to the best of my knowledge, the only one who's come back. I don't like talking about it, but maybe writing about it will be a little better. I've taken a kind of light tone so far, at least compared to how I should be writing, and definitely opposed to how I feel every day of my weary, plodding existence. You know that feeling when you did something wrong and you know you're going to get caught and you're just waiting for the hammer to fall? It's like that, only more existential because I didn't do anything wrong. And now, 22 years on from when it happened, I'm afraid that by naming it, by telling the story of what happened on a cool autumn night, but in a place where a hot wind blew and strange constellations, if indeed they were stars and not... No, I don't want to talk about it now. I will. But I need to work around to it, and hopefully nothing will happen, but the scar tissue on my leg and the memories associated with it tell me differently. Many have vanished over the last 200 years, as I said, and no one has ever found any rhyme or reason to it, why one person goes and another doesn't. A hundred years back, Mr. Benjamin Smythe was crossing with his family in a car, completely enclosed. When they got to the other side of the hundred-foot span, both his son and his daughter-in-law had vanished. The earliest recorded vanishing, though God or the devil or whatever exists out there in the endlessly whirling universe knows how long before that things were happening, 
was a year after the bridge was constructed. A slave owner named Calvin Pruitt was crossing with his two sons, his wife, and four slaves that he kept for his own personal use. When they started across the bridge, they were there. When they came off the bridge, two of them were gone. Of course, it was assumed they escaped. A manhunt was formed, people combed through the woods, a number of men on the bridge looked for signs of where they jumped off, but of course found nothing. Over the few days of that particular investigation, I wish I could tell you that all the searchers were accounted for. One of them, one that had been on the bridge, was gone. Now, yes, absolutely, that could just be a runaway slave and a vagabond investigator, but something tells me it's not. Which brings us to the legend of Bud Adams. There's no one now living who was involved, and everything we know is hearsay, and one article in the paper, the archives of which were lost in a fire, but there's no concrete proof. Just the legend. Certainly a man named Harrison Bud Adams lived and died, and was buried sixty-odd years back, and the funeral procession and the funeral procession would have had to cross the Grants Creek trestle, and yes, there is a record of his widow having lost her mind and been committed, but there's absolutely no proof that the missing is the reason. But there's absolutely no proof that the vanishing is the reason. Sometimes widows just snap. But when the processional reached the cemetery and the pallbearers took the coffin out and the widow Adams walked over for one last look, they opened it up for her. One of them would later comment how they were surprised at how much lighter the coffin felt, but that was nothing compared to the surprise that came a few seconds later, when the widow Adams began screaming. The coffin was empty, as you no doubt have guessed. There was a hue and a cry for a few months, the widow Adams insisting to anyone who would listen that the body had been stolen for dark medical purposes, but we all knew that had to be false. When it was finally pointed out to her that everyone had seen the coffin with the body inside, had seen it closed, seen it locked into the hearse with her standing right there, how she had been riding in the car right behind the hearse, how she had been standing there when they opened up the hearse and pulled the coffin, the much lighter coffin, out, therefore there was no chance for it to have been stolen. She collapsed. She fell catatonic and spent the rest of her short life in a psychiatric institute. 2. The events which occurred to me on that terrible moonlit night are forever etched in my mind. I commit them here to paper because I think that if I were to keep them locked away inside my head, they should drive me mad. Even now I don't know whether the knowledge will drive me on to commit some terrible act of self-destruction which will only end the misery for me. Anyone else walking across the Grants Creek trestle will perhaps be given to the same fate as I. Perhaps there is some way to stop it. I don't think there is. The things I saw that night and the things I learned, it's just too impossible. I suppose I should tell you a little bit about myself in the Grants Creek trestle. There isn't much to tell. I was born in the spring of 1980 in the city of Titusville, Florida. I was not given to wild flights of imagination, and I was always a very serious child. I had been taught from an early age that there were no worlds other than ours, no dimensions outside of our own. What could be observed and defined and felt were the only things that were real and the only things that mattered. And so I believed for the next 36 years. Up until that night I crossed the Grants Creek trestle. Grants Creek is itself a small little forgotten runnel that carries water from some forgotten lake to some other forgotten destination. I'm sure there are geologists somewhere that know what and where, but I don't, and no one around here does either. Every week, as I said for three months, 
I had traveled to the town of Hadley to see Miss Jane Littleton, whom I love dearly, and it was this evening that my tale unfolds. There isn't much to tell. I'll try to keep it brief, but I have a habit of lengthening that which doesn't need to be lengthened and over-explaining things. I was coming home from a visit to Miss Littleton. The night was clear and cool. The stars shone brightly in their procession and all was right with the world. Jane and I had discussed, among other things, the possibility of our marriage. She seemed to be content with the idea, which made me happy. I was more than willing to marry her. A cool breeze blew as I set foot onto the wooden walkway over the creek and entered the shadows. It was a matter of half a minute's walk to the other side, and when I stepped out on the other end and into the light of the moon, I stopped. Something was very wrong. The trees, so familiar to me, were still here, yet they were different, in what way I couldn't tell. The hot breeze blew past me, rustling the leaves, and the sound of voices reached me, whispered words warning me that I was not to be here at this time, in this place, telling me to leave, or to die an eternal death. I looked upward to the familiar constellations, and saw strange shapes in the sky, flitting back and forth, strange creatures never seen by the mind of man, reeling across the sky, with the backdrop of brightly lit stars, more bright than Sirius had ever been, green and gold and blue and red and orange, and none of them twinkling, all of them closer than any of the planets in our solar system. The shapes winging in front of them were, as near as I can say, like giant bats, but with much more terrible shapes. I closed my eyes and shook my head, and when I opened them, it was standing in front of me. I screamed and jumped back a step. It was over fifteen feet tall, more than twice my height. It was indescribable. A horrific melding of humanoid and all the features of those animals that are least human. It looked at me and leaned on what I can only think of as a spear, but that's not right. It was a staff, certainly but it had a large curved scything blade on each end, and seemed to be all edge along its length except for the area where the creature gripped it. It was a weapon designed for killing, and there was no mistake about that. It looked at me, and in my mind I heard its words. It never spoke. It communicated, though. Oh yes, it communicated. Who are you? I... I... Where do you come from? My tongue was stuck. I pointed back across the bridge. On the other side, I could see... The other side. Not the other side of the bridge, the other side of the... Rift through which I had crossed. The creature observed me, looked back along the bridge, then back at me. You came through? I nodded. There was a moment of uncertainty. It shifted the weapon it carried. Fingers, for lack of a better word, though they were strange and boneless like tentacles, working against the handguard of it. It growled something out into the night, and from the side, where nothing had been before, the night suddenly took on hue and shape, and out stepped something even more horrific. I can't describe this one. I won't even try. My mind couldn't comprehend it because the terrible, awful, horrible truth occurred to me in that one crystallized moment of fear and uncertainty. I don't remember leaping up and running, because there's a break in my memory. 
The next thing I knew, I was running toward the bridge, my eyes fixed on blinking on the other side, on my world. Something caught my foot, and I fell. I fell across the threshold on the other side of the bridge, and the night, blessedly cool and normal, came back to me. I looked at the bridge, but there was nothing there. Just the world as it had always been, as it always would be. I stood up, felt a burning in my leg. I looked down. The pant leg on my right had been torn open by some incredibly sharp tool, and beneath it the lacerated skin was red and bloody, torn by the same sharp blade. Some sharp, curved blade, it would later occur to me, for it was in the exact spot that something had caught me as I ran. And then the thought that would forever haunt me, and even now lurks like a weight on my consciousness settled on me. Since then I have lived in a dark place. Jane Littleton has requested I not see her anymore. My family and friends have taken to keeping away from me lest I tell them things they don't wish to hear or believe. But I know it to be the truth, terrible though it is. I crossed the Grants Creek trestle and found myself in some other dimension, some place of sight and sound not our own, and the beings there were terrible and awful to behold. The only one I ever truly saw asked me that night, You, you came, came through? Which means they had opened the doorway between worlds, from their side, which in turn means that something from their world is now in ours.